Well, again, good morning. It is great uh, to be with you and to worship together. It's great to be back. Uh, Langley and the kids and I were away uh, for a couple weeks. This has become our practice kind of after Christmas and as we turn the corner into the new year, just to get away and get a little bit of rest and downtime. And uh, it certainly was that. And uh, I just am so grateful um, to have a community that allows us that privilege, um, but also that we have such amazing leadership. Uh, I'm so grateful for Jack and for Derek uh, bringing God's word for us and just all the folks uh, who continue to leave and just the ministry that continues uh, week in and week out here at Apostles. And so just so grateful uh, for our time away and grateful to be back. Uh, we've begun a new year. Uh, when I left town, it was 2021. Now it's 2022. And uh, we're starting off on a new year. There's been bumps already. Um, I know this COVID thing just will not go away, uh, but we need to continue to pray that it will go away, continue to pray for healing and protection for one another. But what a gift that we can be together and to worship together uh, today, even with everything that's going on. I did want to ask just uh, as I begin this morning, as we do start a new year, uh, if you would be in prayer for our leadership council. Um, We are going to be gathering this coming Friday and Saturday just to seek the Lord together to to talk about the year ahead and really this next season of ministry um, together as a church family. So I would uh, ask that you be praying for us as we seek the Lord and that we would hear from him and that uh, he would continue to lead us as a church. Um, And it's an exciting time in the life of our church. Uh, We've been through a lot over the last uh, two, two and a half years. Um, And uh, one of the things that's so encouraging to me is just uh, we're having so many new people uh, coming and joining us and wanting to be a part of what God is doing here. And I just know when we have a lot of new folks, uh, there's questions that get asked. And one of the questions that invariably gets asked is, wait a minute, why do you baptize babies? Um, because a lot of us come from traditions where that's not the case, or maybe you didn't grow up in the church. And so this whole thing about baptizing uh, infants is, is new for you. And I just want you to know, I know exactly how you feel. Uh, I grew up in, in a Christian home. I grew up in a family that worshiped in a Baptist church. Uh, when I was seven, uh, I received the Lord as my savior, uh, as, as my king, and, um, and was baptized immediately after that at the age of seven in front of my entire congregation. And it was a powerful and beautiful experience for me. Uh, But that kind of history and experience made um, my introduction to first the Episcopal Church when I was in college and then the Anglican Church uh, shortly after that, where they baptized babies. I was very confused. I didn't fully understand what exactly was going on. So maybe you can identify with that. Or maybe, uh, even if that's not new to you, if you've grown up in a tradition that uh, baptized infants, I think it's always good just to stop and ask, okay, why do we do what we do? And so that's what I really want to do this morning is, is ask this question. What, what is it that's happening in baptism and why do we do it? What does it mean? Um, and so we're going to do that together. I have to tell you this. Uh, it was just really funny in my own family when I became an Anglican and I was ordained uh, following seminary. I went to uh, uh, a family gathering and one of my extended family members, she said um, to me, wait, you're, you're being uh, ordained but not as a Baptist pastor? And I was like, that's right, as an Anglican priest. And she was like, is that Christian? Um, And uh, she was very concerned that I had actually lost my faith. Uh, And uh, from her Baptist perspective, the biggest thing that she had questions about was this, was infant baptism. And 
And so I began to look into this too. I was really taking a close look at this because it was new for me and it was, it, was, um, it was very different and I didn't fully understand it. And, and here was just right off the bat, one of the most surprising things to me about baptizing infants that I discovered uh, as this was new to me was that faithful Christians, both today around the world and down through the history of the church, have been practicing infant baptism from the very beginning. And that was news to me because I had not grown up in a tradition where that was true. In fact, infant baptism has been the primary mode of baptism in the church for more than 2,000 years. And so you just kind of step back and take that in. It kind of, I think, reframes the conversation a little bit. At least it did for me because what that means is um, this idea of baptizing babies is actually, um, is actually something that's been in the church and part of the life of the church from the very beginning. Um, and so today, as I stand before you, I am fully convinced that what we just did is a beautiful and not only powerful, but biblical uh, call on the church. It is right and good for us to baptize uh, children and adults. And so that's what we do here at Apostles. So today, what I want to do is I want to I just give a little, uh, a little bit of an intro, you might say, into this idea of what baptism uh, is and what it means. And at the very end, I'm gonna talk just a little bit more specifically about infant baptism and what that, uh, what that actually, how that actually works. Um, so baptism, um, I wanna say, is kind of three things. And the first I would say is baptism is sacramental. Baptism is sacramental. Maybe that's a new word to you. Sacraments in, uh, in the church are the visible, physical signs that carry spiritual meaning and power that were given by Jesus himself uh, and that they were uh, given for the blessing and the building up or the encouragement of the body of Christ from the church. So that's what a sacrament is. You might say a sacrament is a sign of divine grace. Uh, It's an outward and visible sign of this invisible reality of grace. That's what the 39 Articles, which is our, uh, our kind of confession of faith as Anglicans, that's what it says. And so there's two of these sacraments uh, that we observe, that we uh, celebrate. And one of them is um, baptism. And kids, what's the other one? Does anybody know what the other sacrament is? We got baptism and, any guesses? We do it almost every week, and it's right behind me. Communion, I heard somebody whisper it. Yes, communion. So baptism and communion, right? Those are our two sacraments that we observe as followers of Jesus. And baptism in particular, it's really powerful, I think, to see this and clear in the gospels when Jesus, he's gathered his disciples right before he leaves and then what's called the Great Commission, this is what he says. He says, go therefore and make disciples. And he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So he says, go as disciples, make disciples of all nations and baptize them. And so it's central to Jesus' mission and to his, um, his vision, his call in our life. And so baptism is this sacrament that Jesus has given us and it's a gift. I think it's really helpful to think of baptism as a gift from Jesus. Jesus has given us this gift and it's this physical thing, right? We just stood around these little tables and there's this bowl and there's water in it. And we take the water and I kind of splash it on their faces. When we do adults, we, we, 
dunk them in this tank up here and they go under the water and they come up and they're all wet and they're usually freezing cold. And, you know, it's just, it's this real physical experience, right? It's water. And I know it's easy to kind of miss that. I think take that for granted, but there's something really powerful about the fact that Jesus himself has given us this physical means to encounter him and his grace. And it's so helpful. It's something you can feel, something that you can touch. It's experiential. And like communion, there's bread and there's wine, right? These physical things. In, in, uh, in the scripture, we're told to lay hands on people. There's something powerful when you're prayed for and someone puts their hand on your shoulder and prays for you. Anointing with oil is another great example. We're called to do that for the sick. And so there's these physical touch points with God that come through the people of God. These physical touch points with God that actually come through the community of faith, through the people of God, through the church and their precious gifts. And I think this is such a needed word for us today in the church, in large part because I think in our culture, there's such a move away from embodiment. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's this move away from the physical being tethered to anything. And there's this idea of being just kind of disembodied experience. And what baptism and communion are calling us to do is to focus not only our hearts and our minds and our souls, but also our bodies on Jesus. And I think we need to hear that call. Our world has come to believe the physical body is incidental and in some cases even harmful, right? Harmful to our identity and our quest for self and autonomy. But God says our bodies actually matter. God is the creator of all of us, and he's the creator of all of us, our whole selves, our heart, our mind, our souls, and our bodies. He made us, and Christ died a physical death for us, for our whole selves, not just for disembodied spirits. Baptism is a tangible reminder that we in the world don't just live in a spiritual reality and a physical reality. In fact, I don't even know that that's all that helpful or biblical to talk in those terms, but we tend to do it, physical reality and spiritual reality. Instead, there's a created reality by God himself, and there's invisible and visible aspects of that reality. And again, I think baptism as a sacrament, it points us to that visible and invisible reality. It comes together in one place in a really powerful way in the waters of baptism. So baptism is sacramental. Second thing I would say is baptism is covenantal. Baptism is covenantal. To rightly understand baptism, we have to see it within the context of covenant. We worship a God who loves to make us promises. I said that to the kids a minute ago. God loves to make us promises, and he loves to keep them. He's the God who makes promises and keeps them. We worship a God who makes promises. And in the Old Testament, God made a promise to his people through Abraham. We read that passage in Genesis 17. Through Abraham, God's covenant was made with him and his descendants, and so what, just a little context, what's happening with Abraham there is in a fallen world, right, God's desire is to find someone in the world that he can trust and find someone who will trust him to, to build this relationship, this covenant relationship. 
And in Romans 4, the Apostle Paul says Abraham was not chosen for that relationship because he was so awesome. He was not chosen for that relationship because he had earned it. He was chosen out of God's gracious election and his faith, Abraham's faith in God's faithfulness is what made him right with God. And not only him, but through faith in the faithful God, that God would save the world, including his descendants, and that he would set things to right by grace through faith in him. That is uh, familiar. That's a familiar message, isn't it? That's the gospel. And you can see that all the way back in Genesis 17, even to Abraham, you can see the gospel. I love how one uh, Anglican pastor said it. He said, God's covenant means God's grace, which is all of him for us. And God's covenant means our faith. It means all of us for him. That's the relationship he's invited us into. That's the covenant of grace. And that covenant has a sign. That covenant has a sign, something that reminds us, that points to, that embodies that in a physical way. And in Genesis 17, we're told this, that as for you, God says, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep, that every male among you shall be circumcised. So in the Old Testament, what you've got here is you have a sign, and the sign is circumcision. It's the sign of the covenant. And in the New Testament, there's also a sign. There's a physical sign of that covenant that we have, the covenant of grace in Jesus Christ, and that sign is baptism. So Old Testament circumcision, New Testament baptism. Now, here in Genesis 17, in other words, just to say that again, what God has said is he has made a covenant and he's given a sign. And with that sign, what he says is this sign is for you and your descendants. It's for you and your children. Now, what's amazing about that is in Genesis 17, that's what God says. The promise is to you and your seed after you. Flip forward to Acts chapter 2 in the New Testament. You know what it says about the covenants that we have in Jesus? It says that this covenant is for you and your children. This is to be a sign for you and your children. In other words, Luke, who wrote Acts, could not be more clear. Circumcision in the old, baptism in the new. Baptism is the covenant sign for the New Testament. And so it's sacramental, it's covenantal, and then the last thing is that it's powerful. It's powerful. And this was a big change for me coming out of the tradition I came from and coming into Anglicanism because I grew up in, uh, in a tradition where baptism was, by and large, symbolic only. It was a symbolic gesture that pointed to something that it really had very little to do in reality. It was a profession publicly of what had already taken place, and there's truth in that. But I think that robs baptism of a lot of its power to see it as only symbolic. Uh, in other words, baptism has effects, and we see this all over the New Testament. So in the New Testament, we get lots of images of baptism, and I think they give us glimpses into the effects of baptism. So John 3, 5, for example, speaks of baptism as new birth. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, describes baptism as washing. Uh, Romans 6, 3 stresses that baptism is the sign of justification, that through baptism we are declared 
right with God by grace through faith in Christ. It points to baptism and says those things, which is kind of shocking that there be that close of an association. We tend to think of the cross as the sign, and it is. But baptism, too, is talked about this way. Baptism is putting on a set of new clothes, is what Galatians 3.27 says. And in 1 Peter 3, it says it's a way of escaping death and into life. So the New Testament is teaching us that baptism actually does something. It actually has powers, not just symbolic. It teaches us through baptism, we are incorporated into the body of Christ. And that we're made one with him, and in baptism, we are raised to new life in him. So baptism is effectual. It has power in our lives. It has power in the lives of these babies that we just baptized. It's not just symbolic. It's not just a sweet, cute thing that we do. We have declared something powerful over the lives of these children. I love Michael Green. Um, He's an Anglican pastor. He has a great book. There's copies in the lobby, and I would encourage you to grab a a copy uh, this morning. But in his book, he talks about five things that baptism actually does. And I just want to run through these real quick, because I think this is a great summary of what baptism actually does, what the power is. He says, what does baptism do? Baptism, first, it embodies our repentance, it's, it's the sign of our turning from self to God. Second, baptism offers us God's blessings. What kind of blessings? Forgiveness, adoption, the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell in you, the righteousness of God. It, it unites us in Christ. It gives us life. So all these blessings that come to us through baptism. Three, baptism initiates us into the global historical church. It's the right of entry into the church. It's like, uh, it's like our adoption certificate that we get from God. It's who you are. You are part of his family. You are beloved as a child of God. Baptism number four raises us from death to life. Baptism means death to the person that you were and alive to the person you are in Christ. Dead to selfishness and unforgiveness and being cut off from God and alive to being with him, surrendering your will to his will and living free from the powers of sin and death. And then number five, baptism commissions us for the work of God. Just as Jesus was ushered into ministry after his baptism, we too are sent into the world with a new identity and a clear calling as his people. It's not just an individual thing, it's a corporate thing. We together are the baptized and we seek to live as representatives of our new king, Jesus, in the world. So, to be clear, the key, I want to say, for understanding what all that means, right, because those are some amazing promises, those are some amazing realities, but here's what you have to be clear on. The key to understanding baptism for anyone is to understand that baptism does not automatically confer any of those realities, it is not automatically, you get baptized, you're good with God, is not how that works. And we have to be careful with that because the church has taught that explicitly and implicitly, especially when it comes to infant baptism. That is not what we are saying today. What we are saying is that the power of baptism takes effect. All these promises, all of that takes effect when it comes into contact with genuine repentance and faith in Christ. Whether baptism comes after conversion or before, that is the truth of baptism. And so I just want to say that again. Baptism does not automatically confer these things when it comes into contact with genuine 
repentance and faith in Christ. All those promises, all those realities are ours in him. So, to close, where does that leave us with infant baptism? Um, Here's what I would say about infant baptism in terms of the evidence and the ground that we can stand on as far as baptizing babies in our community. There is a lot of really good evidence. And so let me just recount a little bit of it. Some I've touched on already, but here's what I would say. I, I would say that children, we've seen, were admitted to the Old Covenant in the Old Testament on the basis of their parents' faith. That was the case in the Old Testament. And so the argument then is it seems strange that they would suddenly be excluded from the New Testament because of their parents' faith. There seems to be a disconnect. So to me, that, that's significant. Um, other evidence, there's, there's a whole series of examples of households and families. We read one uh, in Acts about the Philippian jailer. His household, his family came to faith when he came to faith. And so there, there's, there's something going on there that when families, the heads of homes are baptized, the whole family is baptized, it would appear. Now, there's nowhere explicitly where it says infants were baptized. That's about as close as we get, and we need to be mindful of that. Um, but there is a lot of evidence, uh, further evidence for the attitude Jesus had towards kids. He loved kids. That's why I read from Mark chapter 10, those verses where Jesus talks about welcoming children into the kingdom, and he loved them. He brought them to him. He called them. He blessed them. He laid his hands on them because he loved them. And he even goes so far as to say, it's, it's how we come to the kingdom. is like this, like children. We come to the kingdom. Further evidence. The early church practiced infant baptism without debate. So that may be surprising to you. Early church leaders practiced infant baptism. When I say early church, I mean those who were discipled by the apostles. So Origen, uh, one of the church fathers in the second century, he says explicitly that the apostles baptized children and taught their, their disciples to do the same. And so to me, that's significant. I mean, right from the very beginning, there's no break. There's no discussion. In fact, the only discussion comes when the Protestant Reformation comes in the 1600s. Up until that, it was uniformly, almost exclusively practiced um, among faithful Christians. So here's what I would say. All those things, all those things together, any one of them, not convincing by itself. Together, I think pretty convincing. But here's what really convinces me, and I'll end with this. What convinces me is that baptizing infants is both good and necessary is because of the gospel itself. It's in line with the message of the gospel that we ourselves have received. This is what I mean by that. Baptizing infants points to the objective truth of the gospel. Jesus, here's an objective truth. Jesus died once and for all of us. It's true. No matter how I respond to it or you respond to it or any child ever responds to it, that is true. It's true that we are saved by grace through faith. That's an objective truth of the gospel. These objective truths of the gospel do not depend, again, on our response. Baptism reminds us that we are not saved because of our faith, but through the gracious acts of God on our behalf namely the giving of his son on the cross. 
Babies are precious. These babies that were up here are beautiful. Uh, we could just stare at them all day long. They're amazing. You know what else is true about babies? Babies are helpless. <laughs> they are fragile. They are utterly dependent. They cannot care for themselves. They cannot save themselves. And so when I think about infant baptism, and I think about what babies are like, to me, I think it's this beautiful picture of the gospel. Because you know who else is fragile and helpless and can't take care of themselves and desperately needs someone to do that to save us? That's us. See, that every time we do this, it's a picture of the gospel and what God is like and what he's done and how he loves us. And that we can never do anything to earn that. It's a gift. It's a great gift. And I would say this, because I hear this sometimes about baptism, you know, people who've been baptized as babies and, you know, having a conversation about being rebaptized. If, if that's a question you're wrestling with, I would love to talk to you about that. Because here's what I think. I think when you were baptized as a baby, if that's you, it was a great gift from the Lord to you. And this is why I think it was such a great gift. It's not something that you missed out on because you didn't get baptized as an adult. It's a gift to you that you were baptized as an infant because it's an objective declaration of God's love and grace to you that nothing can ever change. Not what you think, not what you feel, not what you experience, that is objectively true. And I love what Martin Luther said about um, his own wrestling with his faith. He said, to kind of paraphrase, he said, if you ever question God's love for you, I don't know about you, but I've questioned that. If you ever question God's love for you, if you have doubts about what you believe, this is what Martin Luther said. He said, I can say I have doubted my faith. I have never doubted my baptism. And I think baptism is a gift in that it is absolutely true. In days when our feelings are often mistaken as the greatest arbiter of truth, baptism points to the objective truth of God's love for you and his grace to you in Jesus Christ. Today we baptized two infants. When I met with the parents this week, I reminded them that today they pledge something very important as parents. Again, to quote Michael Green, I love this. He said, baptism is a pledge of God's new life. It is like a seed. It is only germinating when it encounters the water of repentance and the sunshine of faith. What we've done today is we have planted seeds you as parents have pledged to water and to care for the seed that's been planted today. Teach these children the word of God. Teach them to live by his truth. Teach them and show them the transforming power of the gospel in your own lives so that one day, by God's grace, they can affirm for themselves what today we have declared on their behalf. And church, you have made the same commitment. You have made a commitment on behalf of these children to be their covenant church family. You have made the commitment to bear responsibility for them. And it's our job to pray for them and to proclaim the gospel to them in word and deed and to love them and care for them. Again, so that one day they might know Christ as their own. And so I just wanna encourage us, let's take up that charge. Let's live into that charge for the sake of these children, 
for the sake of the gospel and for God's glory. Amen.